You're like a wiggle. I'm like a wiggle. Trying to do a podcast. I'm like a wiggle trying to do a podcast. I'm trying to get everyone into like the big red car. Yeah. And then get everyone singing along to the big red yeah. car. Hey there, and welcome to the first podcast of Espresso and Earl Grey, where bright thinking meets legend brewing. I'm Sam, and with me is another Sam, Dr. Sam Chan, and we're just two Sams brewing about life's questions, seeing the world through different eyes, and connecting ideas with everyday lives. On this podcast, we'll be talking about topics ranging from failure to success to love and friendship. And today we're going to be talking about how being first, second generation Asian migrants has insights into living in a COVID and post-COVID life. And without further ado, let's get brewing. Sam, um, we're both Asian Australian migrants. Are you first generation or second generation? I came at six months old. So essentially... Essentially second generation. Yeah, so... I was once in America where all these Korean Americans introduce themselves as I'm 1.5 or I'm 1.8, I'm 1.9. So they actually go to that sort of degree of differentiation. So So I guess I'm 1.99 or is it 0.99? 0.5. Okay. Whereas I'm a 1.5. I came here when I was six. Yeah. So you would have seen less of a... In, you needed less integration into Australian culture, whereas, or was that not the case? I had a really hard time. Yeah. Because there were no Asians in my day. Yeah, yeah. So if you saw another Asian across the street, you would cross the street just to say hi and yeah, introduce yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and how did that difference kind of shape you? I think... You really don't know who you are. I know that's such a cliche, and it was made worse because my parents moved from Adelaide to Sydney when I was eight. And back then, Adelaide and Sydney were worlds apart. Mm. Different codes of football, Mm. different accents. So then I I actually didn't know how to speak English. I didn't know what accent was the normal accent. So I was always made fun of for my English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you... I, I remember when I was in high school... There was a stage where I had to change my English because I just wasn't fitting in. Yeah. I remember it was drama class. I stood up and I had to give a speech and then everyone was going, your accent is so weird. And so then over time, it's just broadened. And then I go off to the country, New South Wales, and people go wait a minute, how come your accent's so broad? You don't look like one of us. Was that your experience as yeah, well? Yeah, so you notice most of our Asian Australian friends have hyper-ocker Australian yeah, accents. Yeah, yeah, It's almost to compensate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the Chinese, I don't know if you notice, they over-pronounce their words because they think that's what mm, you're meant to do. Mm, mm. So I was once a narrator in a school play in third class where I had to say the word potato. And I kept saying potato because that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you'd have the whole hall laughing every night when I said potato. And I was really confused. I was like, how, how else are you meant to say potato? And I realised you're meant to say potato. Potato, yeah, yeah. <laughs> potato. I remember in, um, in year five and six where I had a teacher and um, I was taught always that it's Australia. And I would say Australia, 
and she would say Australia. But anyway, um, did your parents take the brunt of um, that kind of shifting of migration? They're either happily naive or they just navigated through it and thought that was a normal way of life. Mm -hmm. But I think for our parents, they always remember the Hong Kong they left. Yes. And Hong Kong is very class oriented, very hierarchical. Yeah. And then they come to very working class Australian mm. suburbs. And so my mum is always trying to dress me up for school. Mm, mm. You know, there's a school photo. She's trying to put a part in my hair and a mm. tie on and even a blazer mm. in a public Western suburb school. And when we went to church, you know, everyone in our church was wearing thongs and shorts mm, and t shirt. Mm. And my mum was always trying to put me in a college shirt, yeah. leather shoes. So it was really hard. I, I so they I think they were oblivious yeah. to what was going on. Yeah. It seems like you you were part of the earlier first yeah. maybe the first wave of migrants. Whereas I'd come in in the 90s yeah. where there were already established Australian Chinese people. And I remember having going to church and I wanted to wear thongs. And it was like a big no-no in this Chinese church because you weren't respecting anyone. Yeah. And you had to wear some sort of enclosed shoes. It seems like um, that church was an RSL <laughs> um, club. What can we be, how can we learn in this COVID state? where things are just changing and adapting, what can we learn from being migrants, you reckon? I think just thinking, where is my identity? Where is my status? So I think for my parents, status still was being seen to be proper. That's why your parents wouldn't let you wear thongs, because mm. that's improper. Mm. I was just seeing today a friend post on Facebook their family portrait, professional portrait, and the mum, the dad, and the three gorgeous teenage kids, all and the all boys, all had long flowing hair that went down to their shoulders. And they were Chinese, right? (laughs) Because in the 70s, everyone had long hair, the men. But my mum would refuse to let me have long hair. So I always had to have short hair Mm, mm. because long hair was improper. So I think, again, my mum not coping with the changes and what that means. And COVID does the same thing. It takes away jobs. It takes away things that we once thought were really, really secure. And it forces us to ask, well, who am I? Like, if I'm not working... Who am I? Who am I if I'm just sitting in my study in pajamas yeah. talking to a webcam? If I've job, yeah. if, I've, um, if I can't see my friends. Um, and, I, and I think as, as, second, as a second generation or first generation migrant, we've kind of had to navigate that I- identity of not fitting in to general society and at the same time not fitting in to Chinese culture and trying to find out our own personal niche. And that's where the adjective Australian Asian or American Asian comes in, right? Because you're not Asian Asian and you're not Australian Australian, you're Australian Asian. How, how would that apply to in this period? Is it, is it trying to find a different in-between identity or a more solid identity 
when everything around us is falling apart. <laughs> wow, that is so good. Because, as you know, with Asian Australians, we're called third culture people. Mm. Because you're not Asian, but you're not Australian. You're of mm-hmm. a third culture. So when me and my friends travel overseas to the UK, Canada, USA, and we look for a church, it's interesting we all look for a Chinese church mm. because we find other third culture mm. Anglo-Asians. We're not Canadian. We're not UK. We're not USA. We're not Australia. We're not New Zealand. We're of a third culture which is the same and this COVID thing is exactly the same if we're not of work anymore if that's not my status and if it's not sports or hobbies because we're not doing that either what is this third culture that I, I'm, I'm clinging to we've all been forced to create a third culture because we've been forced to be refugees or or exiles from our mm. original cultures mm. and I wonder whether a new identity is being formed with family again Because once more, we are forced to be with our family at such, you know, you send your kids to school for six hours a day, five days a week. That's what, five, six is uh, 30. That's that's 30 hours a week. And you only see them for a little bit at the start and a little bit at the end and for the weekend. Now you have to see your kids 24-7. It's suddenly your family becomes even more important in your identity. Yeah, they say we used to outsource family. Mm. As in you got someone else to look after the kids or you got someone else to teach them mm. football or someone else to teach them maths. Mm. Buddy, you are now their maths teacher, their sports teacher, their yeah. childcare. So you can't outsource family. Families come back home all of a sudden and for 24 hours a day, we're mm. family. Yeah. But on the other hand, that, that can create a lot of tension. Are you experiencing that at Studies home? are showing everyone's putting on a brave <laughs> face. Like everyone on social media is putting on a, a facade. Look at me, I'm making sourdough. Look at me, I've just renovated my kitchen. Look at me, I've just cleaned out the shed. Yeah. They say that is just a thin facade. Behind that facade, most people aren't coping. I just saw some stat that show, even though we flatten the curve in Australia, stress, anxiety, depression, loneliness is still sky high. Things have gone down, mm. though they've gone. So what, what the isolation has done, it has heightened, amplified whatever dysfunctionality was already there. Mm. We were able to hide it by numbing it through mm. outsourcing, you know, but, mm. but being away from each other. But now we're forced to be together. It's put under a magnifying glass, the brokenness or the dysfunctionalities or the stress points that already were there. Mm. And I think those those very same stress points are what a lot of migrant people experience as well. Stress, anxiety, wanting to fit in, depression, the loss of identity, mm. the loss of previous identity, the trying to regain a new identity, loneliness. Um, how can we learn from a migrant's experience? Is it the resilience? I, I, I remember looking at my dad. He came here um, in 97. We came here in 97. And he was an aircraft mechanic. He was going to have his long service leave. Uh, no, he was having his 20-year long service leave. Uh, he was going to be a, promoted to a manager if he hadn't left. And then he came here and he couldn't get a single job as an aircraft mechanic because he had no qualifications. And he was jobless and employed for the first six, nine months. And then he had to work for as a, I, I can't even, he told me 
He had to work in a shabby office in Hearstful for a Japanese co- company connecting phone lines. That is so hum- humiliating yeah. for him. Um, 20-year medal of service to an aircraft company to a tiny, tiny, tiny Japanese company. But he, he had this resilience needed. Yeah, there's resilience, especially because, as you say, that massive loss of identity and status, meaning and purpose. So when my parents moved here, yes, it's to give the children a better future, but at what cost? So my mum often reminds us that she was once vice principal in some (laughs) elite, elective, private girls' school in Hong Kong, next in line to be the principal, Mm. comes here, loses it all, is a house mother raising three kids mm. in western suburbs, Campbelltown. She did voluntary scripture teaching in a housing commission area. So that that's really, really low status. Mm. Whereas dad's the doctor. So he's mm. got all the status, you know, dad, the doctor, specialist in the hospital. So yes, there's resilience, um, massive sac- sacrifice. So giving up short-term gains for the hope of long-term gain, the mm. children's future. But at the same time, a lot of immigrants, especially Asian immigrants, they're not very emotionally literate. So they repress their emotions. Yes, yes. And so it comes out often in anger. That's where this yes. dysfunctionality comes out. So they say mm-hmm. a great saying to keep in life is, an, is this, an angry person is really a sad person on the right, inside. Right. Or an angry person is a scared person. Right. And right now with COVID, a lot of us are scared and sad. Mm. So you can only imagine there must be just outbursts yeah, yeah. Of, of rage and anger, mm. which are just masking fear. Yeah. How do we cope with fear? I guess sometimes we try to over control things, mm. don't we? I know, I know, I think, I, I don't think uh, my parents did it overly hard, but I think they were scared for their own future. But so they, they put a lot on me as the mm. only child to, to succeed, to be good. But then that's always under the guise of do the best that you can do uh, with the, you know, the hint that the best that you can do is actually an A. Um, but we can throw our fear into wanting to control our situation or control things that we can control so that we have that illusion of control and that that's that's like um uh hoard uh buying isn't it yeah yeah you're, you're trying to control that little bit that you can control and it just so happened that little bit is toilet paper pasta flour and rice yeah so the asian culture is is amazing because my parents always tell us how they lived through the the wars of the depression japanese occupation the Asian culture, they were once warriors, mm. dynasties. And yet, right now, they're so risk-averse. They're afraid of, you know, walking out in the rain in case, you know, they get yeah, their hair yeah, wet yeah, and they yeah, get a cold. Yeah, exactly. We don't, we don't let any of our wet. children play contact sports yes, like rugby. Yes. They're, they're not allowed to play They're not allowed the to mind. surf. They're not allowed to... <laughs> like, it's, uh, they're so scared of anything. I remember my grandmother would be scared and... 
you, you can't do that. And I think I shared earlier of a friend of mine, an Anglo-American married an Asian-Australian, and he worked out the, the Malaysian saying is, and then you dialer, and then you dialer. <laughs> Whatever you do is always two steps from, and then you dialer, and then you dialer. You don't wear a jumper, you catch a cold, and then you dialer. You eat that chicken, you get poisoning, and then you dialer. Everything's there, <laughs> yeah, you dialer, yeah. dialer. So somehow fear, a lot of, fear is a big part of the Asian culture. Mm. And I think fear in that, well, loss of status, loss of identity, loss of honour, and we over-invest then in the children because the children are our future. They've left their original cultures for Australia. Why? For a better future for their children. Mm-hmm. So it better pay off. Otherwise, there's shame, there's loss of honour. Yeah, yeah. What can we be, how can we learn from that? How can we learn from the pains of the past? And perhaps we, we too try and do that to our children or to those yeah. who we mentor or to, you know, the, the little parts of life where we try to really, really control to the nitpicking uh, perspective. How can we learn from that and apply that to everyday life? Is it just to let go? Or is it a bit of mindfulness? Is it, yeah, what are your thoughts? Oh, it's many things. So we have to recalibrate. We think, am I over-investing my children's future? Yeah. Are they becoming proxy gods that represent me? So yeah. their success, is it yeah, actually my yeah. success? And their failure is my failure. Yeah. We gotta say, no, no. So I can't over-invest. But also recalibrate what is success? What is failure? Yeah. It's amazing how cultural dependent it is. So in an Asian culture, success could mean my kid has to be good at tennis, they have to be able to play the piano, (laughs) and they have to be a doctor. But then you go to an Anglo culture, they'll look at it, that's ridiculous. I don't want my kids good at tennis. I don't want them a doctor. I don't want them, you know, good at whatever. But they have different things. Yeah, so I, I, see, I see Anglo parents on football sidelines screaming yeah. at their kids, Johnny, kick it. Johnny, what's wrong with you? So for them, they've got to be able to kick and catch a football. Yeah. That's how they manage success. Yeah. So we've got to think, well, hang on. How culturally dependent is my view of success? Yeah, and I guess, uh, like I was saying before, it's for, for the Westerners, success is happiness, mm. perhaps. We've moved, especially with the newer generation post boomer post post even gen x generation gen y as as gen y becomes parents and uncles and aunties it's it's happiness you know just just do whatever you want to do as long as it keeps you happy um whereas for the eastern culture it's not happiness it's do perhaps it's it's honor do what you're going to do to honor your family name that makes me um think of mulan uh you'll bring honors to a, honor to us all but it as as archaic as that sounds it's still there isn't it um do whatever you want to do as long as that bring us honor i got up in front of like 200 Chinese people in a Chinese church and I put up a big PowerPoint slide that said you got to do whatever it takes to make your children blank and I said what is the blank and they looked at me blank and of course as you put that up in front of 200 Anglo people they would have said happy it's happy yeah, I want to do yeah. well, you got to do what it takes to make your children happy but the Asians were blank and they want to say successful 
but they knew just how horrible that would be sound to say out loud. And I said, it's happy. You're meant to do whatever. <laughs> the answer is happy in case you didn't get it. But of course, that's the cruel joke because so many books, the happiness trap, yeah. for example, are put out now saying that is the wrong metric as well because you can't find happiness. It's a rainbow that keeps moving further yeah, and further away. Yeah. It's happiness is the accidental byproduct of probably fulfillment when you find yeah where when you end up where you should have been ending up yeah as a christian where does fulfillment fit for you what fulfills you yes so fulfillment presumes there's design because you have to be designed for something in order to be fulfilled yeah yeah. And that's where the Christian... There's a goal, there's a telos. That's right. It really, yeah. really helps because I'm not just random atoms and molecules. I'm not creating my own purpose, which is such an arbitrary construct. That's like a country printing its own money and trying to give it value. We can't create our own purpose. But Christianity says there's a God who's designed us for a purpose. Yeah. And there are many things. But the ultimate one is to just enjoy a relationship with him where we love him, he loves us, and we get to worship and enjoy his glory. And in that moment, we find rest, shalom, peace, fulfillment. Yeah. I kind of think to myself, when we put our... We've been talking about identity work on our shame. When we put our identity on those kind of things, it makes me really angsty. Uh, When I put my identity on um, trying to have people have people's approval it makes me really scared about the next thing but then when i'm just sitting there and going well i don't need to do that i can just enjoy and know that in god's eyes i'm full and complete that in god's eyes he loves and cherishes me i can put i can slowly but in an imperfect way, put everything aside and just sit in that rest. I I saw this great ad and it showed four Chinese aunties or mothers bragging. One says, my son's a doctor. One says, my son's a dentist. One says, my son's a lawyer. And the fourth Chinese mother said, my son visits me. Yes. And the other three aunties' faces just four. Because, yeah, their yeah. Do- sons might be doctors, lawyers, dentists, but they don't visit. They're yeah. estranged. Yeah, yeah. And we suddenly realise life is not a competition. Yeah. It's not about winning. It's about relating. It's who I have. It's not yeah. what have I done, not what have I won, but who do I yeah. have. Yeah. And I guess it's, it's when you've got that goal in mind, when you've got that purpose that you've fulfilled, then you can say, well... It, it it doesn't matter. I can be a doctor mm. um, and I can fail at being a doctor as well. I can be a lawyer and I can fail at being a lawyer as well. And and ultimately, I, 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 I can visit my grandparents because even even in that in that in that illustration that you give. Visiting your parents could be success because that could be the honor and yeah. shame um, yeah, framework. now you got to perform like a you puppy gotta, yeah, dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Son, I want you to visit me. Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. is what? <laughs> yeah, but at the end of the day, when you've got your identity fixed yeah. on on the purpose that I guess, as, as we as Christians, that that is outside of ourselves, that is in God, then we can do all those things without those things 
being a shackle to us and we can do those things with with a joy The, the government has just, Glad, Gladys Berejiklian has just announced that things are lack, uh, the laws are becoming a little bit more lax on Friday. Um, and things are going to um, change, but then it might not be the same as pre-COVID period. It might be a long period of change that we have to adapt to. What's one thing you want to say to our listeners, Sam? I think isolation forced me to declutter. And, <laughs> Marie Kondo way? Well, no, just suddenly my life couldn't be filled with all the things that used to clutter my life. Yeah. And it's made me realise what really, really matters. And especially in Asian culture, suddenly you couldn't display your status symbols. No one saw you in your Mercedes or your mm. BMW or your yeah. Audi. No one got to see your two-storey Mac mansion. No one got to see you in your designer suits. Mm. Uh, so Unless you're in a Zoom call. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it made you realise... I, I need social capital because Zoom calls just expose the awkwardness of relationships. So we've all had to ask ourselves, do I have the sort of relationships that can survive despite a Zoom call, not mm. because of a Zoom call? Mm. So it's forced me to re-examine my life and ask myself, do I have, well, what really, really matters mm. in this life? Mm-hmm. It's, it's decluttered my life. Mm-hmm. So Sam, let me flip the question back to you. We've had COVID, we're moving to post-COVID. What's it taught you? I think that just to slow down in life. Because I felt like pre-COVID, I've got to be doing this, 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 this. My whole day was jam-packed. I go to work, I come back from work, cook, clean. And then I'm just, I'm a person that's got to have so many things to do. And so the minute restrictions came in, I became so suddenly so bored because I'm sitting here going, what do I do next? Like, I'm just here at home the whole day and I've already done all my work. I can't go out. But then I've, I've recently just been really thinking through and saying to myself, well, maybe being in the moment and just, it's okay not doing anything. Um, it's okay having done or what I've already done to go, it's okay to give myself rest. It's okay to open up a novel instead of all the other academic books that I'm reading and just read a trashy Matthew Riley (laughs) novel, you know? It's okay to just watch a movie without needing my laptop there doing work and to give myself that space, to give myself in a way that, that shalom, that peace, that things are okay. And this has been Espresso and Earl Grey with the Two Sams, where bright thinking meets leisured brewing. If you like us, please subscribe, and we're looking forward to our next cuppa together.